a young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. Hello and welcome to The Hub. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. It has been three years since the World Health Organization declared the outbreak of COVID-19 a public health emergency of international concern. Now the world body has just decided to keep its highest level of alert. And the WHO had warns that it is not time to declare the pandemic over. How will humanity navigate through this transitional period in a safer, more rational way? And what does that mean for China now that the country has optimized its COVID policies? For more on this, I'm joined today in Seoul, South Korea by Dr. Alice Tan, internist at Miss Medin Women's Hospital from South Korea. And in Suzhou, China, we have Wu Jiwei, professor and director at the Center for Public Health Research at the Medical School of Nanjing University. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us at this hour. Uh, Dr. Tan, let me go to you first. Uh, some people predicted previously that the meeting at the WHO uh, would actually lower the alert risk, uh, the level of risk of COVID-19, but now the WHO still views the pandemic as a public health emergency of international concern. How do you understand that decision? Well, thank you first for having me on the program. The WHO, they acknowledge that we are in a much better position now in terms of the pandemic compared to where we were in the past, uh, even compared to last year. However, they did uh, acknowledge that during the last eight weeks, the number of deaths globally due to COVID-19 numbered more than 170,000. And the potential dangers of taking our foot off the gas pedal, so to speak, are very high. The global risk of COVID-19 to human health remains high. And of course, ongoing transmission levels are high throughout the world. And because the virus continues to evolve and vaccination levels are suboptimal, access to tools also is suboptimal, there are still very many dangers that are posed by COVID-19 uh, in many countries around the world. So I agree that um, the uh, fake, so the public health emergency of international concern status is still warranted. Okay, um, Professor and Director Wu, what do you think? Are you surprised at all that the WHO kept its level of highest alert for COVID-19? I'm not surprised because basically, if you look at the uh, decision uh, they made, uh, clearly reflects what the real situation in the world. Because uh, first, uh, that uh, the, the medical preparedness in various different regions are, are, are very different. In some regions, actually, the uh, therapeutic drugs, the vaccination rates, they are all not very well prepared. So. And also, as uh, Dr. Tan just mentioned, that the transmission rates are very high in some in some regions. Uh, third uh, aspect is if you look at the the death caused by the Omicron, actually, in the last year, you know, it, it reached about seventy thousand per week, and sometimes it now went down to about you know twenty thousand uh, per week. But still, you see a fluctuation in the deaths. So that's suggesting that. The virus still causes tremendous damage and poses a, a very serious public health threat to the general population. So I think this is a right decision that we should keep uh, the Omicron uh, or the, um, the COVID-19 at the highest uh, uh, level of international concerns. Right. Uh, Dr. Tan, the International Health Regu uh, Regulations Emergency Committee acknowledged that the COVID-19 pandemic is probably at a transition period. Uh, and that it is not the time to declare it over, of course. How long do you think this transition period can be, and what are the risks in this transitional period? 
Well, first of all, in the final stages of a pandemic, the posture should not be uh, relief and uh, forgetting about what to do. The, the posture is to prepare for the next wave or the next stage. The virus, as I said, remains unpredictable. So it's very difficult to know how long this transition stage will last. But we do know there are still 33 countries that have very low vaccination rates, so less than 50 vaccine doses per 100 people recorded in 33 countries. There are still countries that we don't have any information about in terms of what's going on with COVID and COVID preparedness, such as North Korea and Turkmenistan. In terms of the biggest risk, Dr. Mike Ryan of the WHO, he mentioned that the biggest risk posed by COVID-19 is the emergence of a new variant or subvariant that puts us back, that resets the pandemic. Those were the words that he used. So if we have a new variant or subvariant that has higher pathogenicity or can evade diagnostics or evade vaccine-induced immunity or infection-induced immunity even more than Omicron has been doing, that could be a huge setback for the entire world. Yeah, but Dr. Tan, let me ask you, how likely is that scenario whereby a new variant um, proves to be even more contagious, um, probably even more lethal? Uh, unfortunately, we're seeing uh, cases of co-infection. Um, so one person can be co-infected with two different strains of COVID-19. One person can be co-infected with uh, COVID-19 and influenza. And so whenever you have people with co-infections, especially if the infections are happening in somebody who has immunosuppression and the infection is long-lived, then there is the risk of recombination events occurring between the, the two strains of the viruses. And then, of course, you can have a recombination virus. Uh, this is not uncommon. And this is actually what's happened with the XBB 1.5 subvariant of Omicron. Uh, and so this is something that, it, this is not science fiction. This is something that we need to prepare for. And in places with high transmission of acute respiratory viruses, not just COVID, but RSV, influenza, and other viruses, uh, you can have co-infection and recombination events. Yeah, thank you for uh, highlighting and flagging those uh, potential dangers for us and for our audience. Director Wu, what do you think this transitional period is all about? Um, how can people, everyday people, cope with this uh, transitional period? The danger, Dr. Tan just mentioned, it is a real danger. Although the uh, virus itself reverted back into a high uh, pathogenic strains, uh, uh, low probability event, but still we can't rule it out. Uh, we have scientific evidence that the virus could re, uh, generate recombination uh, uh, isolate, which actually is also another uh, potential danger. So, uh, in terms of uh, public in dealing with this virus, I think you know the common sense is uh, uh, still playing very critical role. Uh, although China, right, uh, you know, in our country, we just opened up and uh, eliminate or remove the nucleic acid testing, but I think it's critical that people should should be highly vigilant and. Uh, 
keeping in mind that this is the virus still circulating in the world, and there is a, a still a potential that the virus will bring large number of infections and cause a burden in the healthcare system. So I, I think it's critical that uh, the good habits we developed during the pandemic should still be uh, be observed, such as wearing your uh, face mask and uh, wash your hands, avoid uh, unnecessary large population gathering. Those are the uh, very common uh, practice we have been um, observed, and we find that it's very helpful in preventing large number of infections. So we should keep those good habits. Yeah, sure. Uh, there are many lessons learned throughout this pandemic that has been with us for three years, and uh, many are hoping to see the end of the tunnel soon. Dr. Tan, we've seen many countries reaching herd immunity or where they perceive to be herd immunity through massive infections instead of massive vaccination. How would you compare infection-induced versus vac uh, vaccine-induced uh, immunity? Well, the data seem to suggest that people who have hybrid immunity, in other words, immunity from vaccinations plus uh, natural infection, that these people with hybrid immunity have the highest level of protection against future infections and also severe disease and death. But that doesn't mean that we should encourage necessarily infections because, of course, infections carry risk of long COVID uh, and also um, for the vulnerable groups, uh, infection can lead to severe disease and death. Um, but that's what the data seem to show, that hybrid immunity offers the strongest level of immunity. Uh, also, if people are up to date on their vaccinations, in other words, they've received um, the uh, third dose or fourth dose or bivalent uh, vaccine, whatever is uh, offered in your country in terms of um, the most up-to-date vaccination schedule, that uh, having had the third uh, dose or first booster, second booster, that does add to protection. And Dr. Wu, how do you look at this infection-induced uh, immunity versus vaccination-induced uh, immunity? Uh, what does the research of you and your team tell us about that? Well, um, limited clinical data uh, suggests that uh, when you are infected by the virus, uh, you, you probably would have a, a stronger cellular-mediated immunity, which actually um, could provide a better protection uh, and a longer protection in, in the long run. Uh, for the vaccine-induced immunity, uh, one of the problems is that the, the immune uh, protection wanes very rapidly over the time, uh, such as for the uh, inactivated virus um, uh, vaccine or mRNA va vaccine. If you look at it, you know, after six months, it, its uh, um, protection uh, capability actually is reduced significantly. So I think, it, um, as just uh, Dr. Tan mentioned, that the hybrid immunity basically means that there are two types of of different vaccines, either infections or different vaccines, um, uh, would give them much better uh, protection. I think that this is uh, one of the key issues uh, or the um, the point that we are promoting in the fourth uh, booster shots that uh, we should use the different uh, 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 the, the vaccines with different mm -hmm. manu manufactured technologies. Right, right, right. Uh, advice heated. Uh, thank you. And uh, Dr. Tan, you talk about the fact that there can be long COVID, right? Uh, to begin with, people think that this is just fear-mongering, but uh, as time goes by, many people feel that uh, even if they recovered from COVID, uh, their symptoms, such as um, oftentimes they're short of breath, uh, they feel tired often, there's fatigue uh, in their body. Um, how real is the danger of having long COVID? 
Uh, long COVID is real. Uh, it can be subtle, but this is an area that uh, requires a lot more research. We need research in terms of determining why people have long COVID. So what is the pathogenic genetic mechanism behind long COVID? We need research behind how do we best deal with long COVID? There are so many unanswered questions. And so I think there's a lot of room for centers around the world. For example, in China, Wuhan, I think, uh, the universities and medical centers there, uh, they are doing research on long COVID. But there's a lot of room for supporting research in medical centers around the world. I think we also need to pay attention with what's going on in centers of excellence for long COVID care. For example, Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York, they have a center for post-acute COVID care. Uh, and so we can learn from each other and try to help our populations uh, as best as possible in terms of dealing with long COVID because it is definitely real. We can't uh, deny it and it, it's not helpful to deny it. We need to do more research yeah. and to help the people who are suffering. Yeah, what about the cases, the infections in South Korea, your country, tell us about long COVID? Fortunately, in Korea, we had a uh, relatively high vaccination rate before we went into our Omicron wave. And we do know that vaccination does seem to mitigate or decrease your risk of developing long COVID. But we do have cases of people who are complaining, as you mentioned, of long-term fatigue, shortness of breath. In the U.S., they are finding that people have increased risk of diabetes, blood clots, strokes, cardiac conditions. But in every case, of course, um, we find that uh, in terms of preventing long COVID, vaccination does seem to help. Also using antiviral medication may help in terms of preventing long COVID. And getting people into research, uh, clinical trials, I think is very important. One problematic area is people can have symptoms and because there are so many unanswered questions, many people are uh, engaging in experimental treatments without, uh, not in the context of a clinical trial. And that of course can be very, very dangerous. Uh, and, and people can um, adv advertise false hopes of unproven treatments. So I yeah. think that's something that governments need to be on the lookout for and make sure people don't fall into traps. Yeah, there's so much uh, misinformation and disinformation out there. Uh, it's advised, highly advised to, to seek your, uh, you know, uh, the, the go to a doctor uh, before you go online and uh, seek those advices from what we call a barefoot doctors. Um, Dr. Wu, what about your experience in China? Because in China, when many people um, got infected, uh, chances are they feel that um, there's shortness of breath, uh, you know, they have other symptoms. So uh, what about the cases in China tell us about long COVID? We still do not have a systemic uh, studies on the long COVID, and also the uh, so-called long COVID study. Um, uh, basically, uh, uh, you know, the uh, definition also is vague. Uh, but I agree that uh, as we see more and more patients, uh, it's clear that long COVID is a, a reality. This is something um, definitely we need to do a lot of uh, studies and uh, address some unanswered questions. The, the issue here is that you know. Uh, right now, uh, 
in, uh, such as you know, Nanjing University uh, Medical Schools affiliated hospitals, we do have such patients that um, it's not very clear whether you know certain symptoms are directly caused by a COVID-19 infection or whether it's uh, it's actually complicated by some underlying medical conditions because of the infection. So it, it's a complex issue. We need to um, uh, do a lot uh, longer studies and basically longitudinal studies to follow up to see what actually is the uh, the outcome, how they were related to the COVID-19 infection. So this is a, a, a more kind of a scientific and a clinical issue uh, we need to uh, pay attention to. Yeah, also, um, Director Wu, Dr. Tendros at the WHO made a reference to mistrust. Uh, he said, uh, any public trust in the safe and effective tools for controlling COVID-19 is being undermined by a continuous torrent of myths and disinformation. Um, what do you understand by that? Uh, where is this continuous torrent of myths and disinformation coming from? Well, actually, um, I think, you know, uh, this myth and disinformation, uh, basically, uh, you can see from two sources. One is that if you open internet and the key in uh, information such as uh, COVID-19 vaccine, and you will get all sorts of information popped up, and such as uh, vaccine uh, uh, safety, and you get all sorts of you know um, uh, information from the the website. Uh, a lot of those informations are either misinformation or disinformation. Um, it's uh, no question that you will get dozens of uh, 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 all sorts of feedbacks. So those are the um, basically in the uh, in the internet. One of the problem is that uh, see the the COVID nineteen vaccine side effect actually could be quickly uh, such post would be transferred and amplified by certain communities. So this is uh, uh, one of the big issues when people are actually looking at uh, such as for the vaccines safety they could quickly get a wrong information. And that's why many people are scared of taking vaccines. Um, I actually often get in, uh, inquiry whether the vaccines are safe for certain elderly people or people who actually have certain underlying medical conditions. And uh, a lot of those questions actually should be reflect a certain kind of uh, uh, mis or disinformation. The other source of uh, this, this and, uh, misinformation is coming from politicians, particularly in the early stage of the COVID-19 pandemic. And basically, this is uh, different sections of political forces actually utilize this pandemic as a tool to attack each other. I think this is one of the issues that uh, uh, this kind of a political fighting uh, basically um, proliferate into uh, the medical and the societal level. So that's why, um, you know, it's uh, very hard sometimes to get the right information into penetrating into the general population. Yeah, no more politicization, especially when it comes to uh, treatment, uh, vaccination, um, things related to public health. Uh, Dr. Tan, you talked about the fact that vaccination and improved diagnostics can all help improve the battle against the virus. But the WHO says and I quote that the global response to COVID-19 remains challenged because in too many countries, these powerful life-saving tools are still not getting to the population that need them the most. Uh, as a medical professional, what is the right thing to do at this point? I think we do need to look at the global landscape in terms of, as you're mentioning, the access to countermeasures and tools, vaccines, diagnostics. 
Also, it's very important to make sure that we have a surveillance network globally in place that is working, uh, that we perform exercises periodically to make sure that we are catching signals in a timely way. Uh, and I think what we need to do is take a totally different sort of mindset um, that this is not a national problem. This is a global problem. It, we really need to increase our concern and awareness in terms of what's going on in people who live far away from us. Uh, and it, it really is, I think, a matter of increasing empathy and awareness uh, for what's going on around the world. So many of the countries that are in the middle and low income brackets, um, they are the ones that will suffer from the long tail of this pandemic the most because of lack of access to diagnostics and vaccines and countermeasures. And this is simply unacceptable. And we need to get uh, the leadership and also public support for making sure that this kind of humanitarian crisis does not happen, does not happen in our day and age. Yeah, exactly. Well, if the pandemic has taught us anything, that is, uh, we're all in this together, definitely. Um, Professor Wu, Europe and countries like Japan and the United States have all experienced multiple waves of COVID. Uh, what can China learn from their experience? And uh, if any, um, what can they learn from China? I think it's uh, very critical that uh, in early stage, uh, what we learned is that uh, we need to have a very strong government, to particularly uh, in the case that when we do not know much about the virus about the pandemic. So a strong government and a coordinated uh, societal forces actually are very critical in, in dealing with a large scale public health crisis like COVID-19. Uh, the second is that um, I think what we learned is that since it's a pandemic, uh, various different governmental uh, coordination, uh, cooperation, and put aside the political differences are very critical too. And the third is that we need to enhance the role of WHO, which actually is uh, one of the um, very important forces in dealing with uh, in dealing with the global public health crisis. Uh, those are the uh, few things we, we learned from the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. The other thing, you know, uh, as uh, China getting into the fourth year of the pandemic, uh, what we can see is that our initial uh, reaction or our initial uh, measures against this uh, virus actually is quite effective. As the virus evolves, actually we need to build up a, a very strong uh, surveillance and also the medical intervention approach. Those are the issues actually, uh, I, I think uh, it's uh, playing a very critical role. The, the other thing actually as a medical uh, research professional, I feel that, that we need to build up a very strong research background. A research uh, a base uh, to develop uh, effective vaccines and therapeutic drugs. And this is something actually I think the Western developed countries has a strong hand. That's what we need to learn. We need to do a long investment and build up such capacity. Yeah, uh, Professor Wu, we know that more than 65% of Chinese population now live in urban areas. How do you think China's mega cities can achieve their uh, development goals, their GDP goals on one hand, to make sure there's enough income, there's enough jobs, while at the same time ensure that residents are protected against long COVID or against uh, another potential wave? 
Well, in the uh, large city, if you look at that since uh, uh, the early December, when we open up the society, the COVID-19 cases reached the peak at the end of uh, last year, the end of December. And in uh, January, you can see that the overall infection and the severe cases in the hospitalization actually down to very low levels. So in the big city, uh, you know, I, I can feel that the life pretty much come back to normal. I have been traveling around for the past two weeks and you can see in different cities uh, the uh, life is pretty much normal but in the countryside uh, the situation is uh, probably uh, different because our you know medical health care facilities are very much uh, uh, concentrated in big cities in the rural areas the health care system should be further enhanced particularly I think one thing we need to do is that we need to uh, uh, provide uh, stock up uh, sufficient uh, vaccines, uh, therapeutic drugs in the in the base level uh, hospitals and in the county level uh, healthcare facilities in case that one certain outburst of the COVID-19 happen in those areas, then people in the rural areas can are all able to respond quickly and control the outburst to a smallest scale. So I think those are the things actually uh, it's very critical for us to come back into normal, to bring the economic activity uh, back into the normal. Yeah, a lot of uh, the older generation, the senior citizens live in the countryside and it is absolutely crucial that they are protected. Uh, Dr. Tan, on Monday, the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies warned that all countries remain dangerously unprepared for future outbreaks. Some officials also said that the pandemic should be, quote unquote, a wake up call. What do you think the experience of COVID has taught us and how close are we to maybe another pandemic? And by then, how shall we deal with it? Well, you know, climate change is another challenge that uh, affects the entire world. And climate change and extreme weather events, they will increase the risk of the next pandemic, emerging pathogens. I do agree that the world remains unprepared for the next pandemic. Uh, what we need to do is make sure we bolster surveillance, not just among uh, human populations, but also in the environment and in the animal populations for emerging pathogens. We need to have a surveillance network that is, as the WHO said, uh, tied into our global influenza surveillance network, which generally works very well. Uh, we need to make sure that we perform exercises, not just within the scientific community in terms of making uh, vaccines um, for the next pathogen uh, in a timely way, making diagnostics quickly, scaling up vaccines, diagnostics, and, and therapeutics for the next pandemic. But also, I think we need to make sure that our social sciences, so the soft sciences, are also uh, bolstered and exercised. Part of our priority in terms of how governments budget their plans uh, in going forward. Yeah. We can't have uh, financing go yeah. into uh, exactly. panic. Dr. Tan, and I'm then, afraid that's all the time uh, we have for this cycle. live program. We can't let it thank you so much for your advice. We learned so much. And Professor Wu, thank you. That will do it for this edition of The Hub. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing.